This is episode 101 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the aisle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where we're figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. Today, we're welcoming a special guest named Dr. NYC uh, for the purposes of this interview. She is a clinical psychologist licensed in New York and pertinent to our discussion today, specializes in working with families and parents co-parenting after divorce, separation. So lots of conflict and disagreement uh, that she deals with, no doubt. And she is definitely going to be able to help us with this episode's topic, which is how to navigate family relationships. Holidays are coming up. A lot more Family time is on the horizon, and if you're freaking out because of that, then this episode is for you. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway. And remember, you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the link for all of the wonderful things that me and my podcast guests give away every episode for free to subscribers. Today, my Melania Trump character is actually going to do this interview. So, Melania, are you ready to go? I think this will be the best of the best, 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 best interviews. Well, do you think you can handle talking to a psychologist? Uh, Melania, you might be tempted to do some internal insightful thinking. Oh, I've been avoiding that since I first smelled the bathroom after Donald used it. All right. So here you go with Melania Trump interviewing psychologist Dr. NYC. Thank you so much, Dr. NYC, for joining us today. Mm, happy to happy to do what I can. Oh, thank you. Let's be best. All right. So tell us about your approach and what makes it unique. Well, I... I I think part of what makes my approach unique is that I work with people from all different backgrounds and ages and presenting problems and I individualize my approach depending on the family or the individual that I'm working with. And so I think if a, a, a good clinician, that their approach will always feel somewhat unique because every person and every family and every couple is unique. Great. And so what kind of therapy do you do? Do you talk to people or do you just sit there and listen with stone face? What kind of approach is yours? <laughs> um, no, no stone face. Although, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, Melania, you've done well with that approach yourself. People can reject whatever they want. Um, suppose, but I think uh, I definitely am uh, with my individual patients. I, I, I listen quite a bit with my couples. I can be pretty active in trying to facilitate uh, dialogue or create, uh, you know, understanding and clear the air, as it were. Uh, with families, requires being pretty interactive. So again, really depends on what people come in to uh, to see somebody for, depending on 
uh, what what they need. But no, not you know. I try to I try to show people, you know, what I'm what I'm feeling a little bit. I I I, I don't reveal my deepest reactions, but I try to be engaging and and let them know what I'm thinking in session. And how then exactly do you deal with families? Because you deal with often more than one person in room, right? That's right. Yes, that's true. I do that with families and I do that with groups. And yeah, when you have more than one person in the room, you know, you're not only dealing with the individual psychology, you're dealing with all the intersections between all of these individuals and all of the, uh, you know, dynamics between them. And so it's a very delicate dance of deciding sort of what to call out, how to call things out, how to attend to each person in the room so that everybody feels heard and um, nobody feels too overwhelmed or identified as the uh, you know particular problem. You really want to treat the system, not one person. Hmm. So if then one family member didn't agree with another family member, it would have more to do, more than just the thing that they say wrong in the moment. Just more than, I'm so sorry, can you please repeat that? Okay, so one family member plus one family member with opinion they don't like equal fight. So right. is it just about the thing that they say or is it more? Oh, no, it's so much more. It's histories. It's decades more. People will, when there's, you know, with individuals, people will sort of find locations for their anxiety, right? Their individual anxiety it might be a worry or watching the news too much or trying to organize something over and over, trying to fix something. And, you know, people find a location for anxiety. Well, in families, people find convenient ways of discussing things, you know, convenient sort of disagreements that can hold a lot of the energy, a lot of the affect, a lot of the frustration or anger or, you know, uh, stubborn resistance to the other person's change and people will find certain things to argue about often, you know, mm -hmm. no, now that's not to say that, that some of the things that families disagree about, you know, they really mean it. And it's frustrating to have a family member disagree very strongly with something that's important to a person, especially when we get into present day politics and people feel, feel emotionally, uh, deeply connected to some of the some of the things happening and so we can't take it lightly but when family members find things to argue about it's often ways of talking about other things that can't be spoken about out loud mm. and so you know in reconcilia we're trying to figure out how people can have conversations about difficult topics mm. yeah now yeah. if family members yeah. not agree i mean isn't it important that family talks about ways they see world and political situations or do they not you know, talk I at think all? I, well, I think within reason. I think, you know, we can't, there can't be one steadfast rule for this. But I do think that we have to think about the broader objective. And if the broad objective is for family to be able to be in the room together and spend time together, then they may need to approach um, some subjects at arm's length or delicately or, um, you know, with, with, an, with a nod to propriety and a nod to what is, you know, uh, appropriate to the moment. So I think that people should ha be able to talk about politics, but we have to go into it recognizing that um, we might not find consensus. 
And if people are honest about that going into it and people check their expectations at the door, as it were, and say, well, I want to go in and I want to tell them what I think and they probably won't change their minds and they're going to try to change my mind and they probably won't. If everyone can be on board about that, then maybe something can happen. And the only thing that can happen there is that people will be able to feel heard. And if everybody goes in and says, look, I'm willing to listen to you and I might not agree, but I will listen to you and try to understand where you arrived at your perspective, even if I don't believe in your fundamental truths or the conclusions that you draw, I will listen. If everyone agrees to do that, then something can be accomplished, just that everyone feels heard and recognized and attended to for a moment. So before everyone sit down for a big Thanksgiving dinner, instead (laughs) of saying, don't talk about politics, we should say, make sure we all know at the end of this, we don't agree. And then right. start the fight. I think, I think yes. I think I think everybody's saying, hey, let's have some, you know, I do this with couples and, I, and, and with families, it's important as well. The notion of fair fighting, that people won't always get along, but there need to be some rules and some parameters and some agreed upon etiquette. And some of those in some families might be, don't raise your voice. In other families, they will raise their voices, but it will be don't leave the table or take turns or try to maintain a sense of humor if necessary, if, if possible. Um, there may also be rules around, you know, not using slurs or language that is really truly objectionable to some people or painful. And there may have to be some lines that are drawn and held to, even if it creates discomfort or increases the conflict. You know, another thing though, per your point that what people talk about is not often what's really going on. I think sometimes families just want points of contact and people will sort of provoke an argument or stir something up because they really want to feel connected to that person somehow. And people find contact through conflict. And if we anticipate that, we can preemptively create contact with people that doesn't have to be so conflict-ridden. And we can ask them about themselves and we can listen to them. We can inquire about things they do know about, things that we, we might not solicit their political opinions, but we might solicit their opinion on how to purchase a car. And they might be, or whatever it is, we might want to talk to them about recognizing the birds in the backyard and that might be meaningful and that might be enough to quiet things so that conflict doesn't have to happen Hmm. and so i mean in some ways if it takes so much work you have to figure out how to communicate with people who don't agree with you and they do so much sometimes to hurt people i mean is there an argument to say like forget it just throw in towel and just well, go on I to think better with all, life. With all of this said, I'm, I'm talking about how to keep the peace within family. But when things are finally calm, I do think that we have an obligation to call people out. And we do have an obligation to talk to people about our beliefs and see if we can tra- change minds when we feel that our perspectives are really true and important. And we should certainly be creating an environment for younger people to be able to voice their opinions and to talk about things. So... We have to risk disagreement. We have to try to do it respectfully. If we focus on hearing other people, even if we don't agree with them, if everybody focuses on hearing the other person and even understanding the argument we disagree with, if we focus on hearing each other, everybody will feel heard. And that's so much of the battle. 
just that people want to be validated. Yes, you have an opinion and you feel it strongly, even if I don't agree with it. And and sometimes people's opinions are too objectionable, and we have to we have to tell them to back off or to stop or to be quiet, and that's that's legitimate in some moments. But we have to try to all deal with each other respectfully, and not get mean, not get contemptuous, not attack character when we're talking about beliefs and mm. perspectives. Can you talk more about that? What does that mean? Not attacking. Mm. Attacking character when attacking yeah. beliefs. Yeah. I don't. I don't see this in my life, sure. so I have to ask. Sure. Yes. So if, okay. So if, if you're if you're annoyed with somebody who doesn't agree with you, it, it might be tempting to try to find their mo- their weakness, their most sort of vulnerable area, and just attack that to call them out. You know, maybe they haven't. Maybe they've been through something, or haven't been through something else, or didn't accomplish something, or you know, maybe. There's some other frailty, whatever it might be, we might be able to sort of humiliate someone as a way to feel our perspective is superior. And as soon as we as soon as we do that, we've really implicated ourselves in something that's despicable and the dialogue falls apart. And, you know, there's not very much dialogue these days with with social media. People spout things through the Twitter universe. You know, they tweet something out and they're not inviting a conversation. They're just proclaiming something or exclaiming something or reacting. And, and it's 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 only one way. And, and people walk around on their phones and don't speak to each other anymore. And the older the older people I work with talk about this a lot, that they feel people don't talk to each other anymore. And we want to promote dialogue. We want people to be able to listen and say, well, I don't agree with that. Here's my perspective. Or I see where you, I see where you're getting there, but this is how I see it differently. In order to do that, we have to stay in the room. Now, people we're related to might not be people we see most eye to eye with. We don't choose them. We're born to them. We often move away from them. We're not deeply connected to them. So trying to force connection around political ide- ideology might be most difficult with people related to. So sometimes I think it's, you know, we can do what we can, but really we should try to find neighbors and friends and colleagues who are like-minded. That's going to be more satisfying mm. for political uh, validation. Now, when we have the... You say people don't talk to each other anymore. So if we try to make people talk more, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, would that be in person or on social media? Well, you know, I, I'm not a big advocate of social media. I think people need to talk in person more. I think we should be talking to older the older generation more. I think, you know, a lot of times when we, we have family gatherings and some of the older family members can seem the most stubborn and the most rigid in their belief systems, and they probably are, but they're also frustrated that younger people are not asking them more about how they see things, what they've lived through, how their lives and their historical perspective, their historical lived perspective informs what they're, what they're thinking about today. We might not agree with some of the conclusions they draw, and we shouldn't, but we certainly should hear what they've lived through and how they think about things. And and so we should start there. I think we should be talking to older people. And a lot of older people, the older people I work with are some of the most progressive people I work with. I want to be clear that, you know, there's a sort of false notion that the most 
you know, the, the oldest person in the room is the most conservative. That's simply not the case. Hmm. So are you talking about people asking, younger people asking older people that in family about the experience or just like sure, someone on the street sure. at well, bus? Well, 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 people, well, people, I don't take bus, know, to families. be clear, sorry. Oh, yes, sorry. Well, well, generally people will find areas of disagreement and we'll just sort of, you know, we'll just sort of go to that and dig it into the ground instead of panning out and actually trying to find points of convergence or points of like learning about the world through somebody else's perspective. Now, you know, all the research shows that what's great, what's best for young people developing are being in diverse environments. And just like an ecosystem, right, that thrives with biodiversity, we want different perspectives. We want different points of view to create a nuanced understanding of the world around us. But people will often find one point of disagreement and just stay there, just settle there. And, 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 and anything else that's uncomfortable in the family will sort of be, you know, thrown on the bonfire of that, of that one argument or that one, you know, conflict. But if we can be more honest, people can pull back and within families and, and, and outside of families, generally, people can talk to each other. And I think it's good both ways. If, you know, if older people had young people, young, you know, kids, non-binary kids talking to them about their experience, they wouldn't be so transphobic probably and whatever else it is, right? You know, it's, mm. it's that when people are segregated, they don't understand each other as well. And that's why we have so much bigotry coming out of very isolated pockets of the United States. It's, it's a problem. Pockets mm. that Donald Trump thrives upon because people are so, uh, you know, isolated and they're only talking to themselves. Mm. You got to get the gimmick, right? As they say in Gypsy. Okay. So, mm. well... How see now the thing is I I just question like how can you actually get people off their phones how can you get people to talk to the person the old person they see pushing a cart somewhere mm. I mean how do you actually do these things That's an excellent question um, I think part of what what it is is we have to just kind of create a an incentive, and, and what is that incentive? I don't know. Maybe we need a, a sort of a, an AmeriCorps where it's like part of the social web where we get off the internet and into the community and, and, and young college students who do community gardens and hang out with the older people in the neighborhood get like student loan forgiveness or something. Mm. You know, maybe, maybe we do other kinds of service work where people work within the communities and kind of try to retain oral tradition or handcrafts or, you know, other, other traditions that could be lost in years to come. I don't know. I mean, I think that if there's a collective emphasis on saying, hey, this is a community and let's understand who's a part of it, um, then people will be less isolated and more inclined to, you know, want to talk to each other. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe there should be a class on talking in the university. Mm -hmm. And even in, in, in all through grammar mm -hmm. school, I talk, this is how you talk. You get off the phone and you make eye contact. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yes, phone, phones, phone-free zones are, should, should certainly be a thing. There should be phone, uh, phone-free zones, phone-free uh, 
times of day. Absolutely. For instance, sleeping, people should really use alarm clocks and not fall asleep with their cell phones. Screen time is very, very, very stimulating to the brain. People don't rest well when their phones are next to them. So that's a, that's mm. very important. So now also, now we get back, getting back to the families. Sure. When there are phones... At I'm the sorry, family, when there are when phones there are... at the family dinner and how that's also and how that's affecting the way people communicate in the family, the um, social media oh, and the oh, phones. Oh, people, people sometimes text each other at the table. And some of the families I work with, they will be texting each other at the table and not even, you know, communicating out loud. Um, so texting at the phone is just a really easy way to be distracted uh, from being present. And obviously... We want people to be present uh, with the individuals they're, they're, you know, they're surrounding themselves with, whatever the environment, for, uh, you know, collective good. So people need to people need to put their phones down. But you know, the, in the old days, people did televisions during dinner, right? This isn't that new. The phones, you know, phones are a new phenomenon, but they're a variation on a theme, which is uh, people kind of, you know, being present, but not fully present at the same time. Mm. And have you ever worked with people who have fights with family on social media? Ah, uh, like um, people like assuming like fake uh, Instagram accounts or Facebook accounts and attacking their family members. Oh, no, that's that's very deep. I didn't even know that goes on. I I was just talking about people, actually family members on the Facebook oh, or sure. the grandma face. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, I've heard all, all sorts of things. But yes, there's a lot of airing dirty laundry on Facebook. There's a lot of airing dirty laundry on uh, social media. And I, you know, I, I, I really try to intervene and work with the families and with about keeping their private business uh, private. Um, and just like you don't go to your kid's school and argue in the hallways, right? You, you don't do that. You don't uh, do that on social media. You don't do that in your front yard. Uh, it's just about taking care of your own, um, you know, self-respect and the respect of those around you. So now I don't do social media as I pay someone to do that for me. But uh -huh. I hear though that sometimes people get very mad. They see something someone wrote on the social medias of a family member and then they – something very maybe political they don't agree with. And then they want to go straight to the jugular and get in there and dive and mm. argue. Yeah. And mm. then sometimes it gets very heated. So what do we do? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one one thing is that first, you know, never never tweet never tweet in an emotional uh, spike. You know, when you're when you're feeling something strongly, that's the time to wait and pause and not send a message, not send a text, not post a tweet, not uh, you know, send your boss an email or or whatever or your 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 spouse whatever whatever it is. Um, so that's that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, if you're anticipating that you're going to be engaging somebody that you are going to feel very, you know, um, different from in terms of your, your political react, you know, a conversation or your reactions to whatever they post, you prepare yourself in advance and kind of inoculate yourself. Imagine the worst that they can say so that when you go in, you don't feel perfectly stunned. You know, people are sort of eternally, you know, shocked 
by by behaviors that are actually quite predictable when we understand who we're dealing with. Now, um, you know, if somebody is like particularly gaslighting, that can be really maddening because there's a sort of almost righteous indignation that the person will do this. And yet, again, if we remind ourselves that that's par for the course, we're not going to be so, uh, you know, been out of shape by it. You know, not as much. We can stay regulated because we anticipate it. We go in with some, you know, arguments already prepared that if they start making comments, if they start using biased language or, um, you know, political opinions that have no merit, uh, you know, you want to be able to hear what they're saying or at least, you know, do your best to, to, to hear them out and then have your answers already prepared, knowing that they might not hit, but that you are not allowing yourself to be too emotionally dysregulated by it. Mm. And mm-hmm. now if someone is listening to this and they have already had many of the arguments without the rules and all the things you're saying and yeah, they're on very bad terms with their families. So yes. how can they start engaging about anything other than just, oh, isn't this nice food? Oh, there was mm. traffic. How can they start engaging yeah, in yeah. real conversation? Yeah. You know, I think that that's, uh, it's, it's probably going to take something like having uh, nice distractions around dogs are helpful. Grandchildren can be very helpful. Um you know, other like sort of uh, uh, shared activities, uh, World Cup, people like soccer. You know, it's going to be these moments when people are getting along that then you try to just kind of, you know, establish a little bit more connection. Over time, you know, older people do, you know, often run a little more to the right. They are more conservative than somewhat families, that's for sure. And, you know, over time, the younger people are going to get more liberal and people are going to be able to get along better, I think. And, uh, you know, ultimately you just want to choose your battles and, you know, um, focus on making dinner as well as, you know, trying to solve the world's problems because these are people you're going to have to spend time with. They're not the people you're choosing. Now, what if someone says something very bad at the table? They say something okay. very sure. mean in a way that you're like, oh my goodness, that's so mean and that's not good. Do you say nothing or do mm-hmm. you say something? Well, you know, some, well, right. Anything that's said that's, that's said in anger, desire to shock or to hurt. I think the, the most important strategy is not to, not to shut it out altogether because there needs to be some acknowledgement that it was messed up, but don't, don't give the person what they want, which is, is, is making them feel emboldened or giving them the attention. You just have to kind of treat it like something humiliating that happened and, and move on. In the moment at the table. Now, if something happened in the therapy session like that, that's not how we deal with it at all. We would put it out on the table and we'd name it and we'd talk about what just happened and why somebody just threw a grenade into the middle of the, uh, into the middle of the room. And we'd talk about it like a grenade. And we'd talk about it having a function, a horrible function. But we call the person out for the aggressive upheaval of that. Mm. But if you're having a meal, that's the thing. We always have to make clear, okay, what's the occasion here? Is this to have a heavy conversation? You know, if it's a family gathering and everyone's sitting on the porch and feeling pretty relaxed, you might be able to venture into some territory that's a little more serious. But if you have extended family around and it's, you know, it's already 
it's already tense and you're having a meal together, that might not be the time to do it. What if, how do I want to phrase? So what if they're saying it not to, not about anyone at table, just saying in general, they say something that no one agrees with, but they, they want to say, oh, I went to the, get my car fixed the other day. And this person was blank a blank. And then they say things maybe not very nice about mm-hmm. that person yeah, yeah. that would get everyone yeah. else at the table, but you're talking and they say, what I talk about the person I met today. So but then other people at the table get very upset because they feel it's not right or discriminatory, mm-hmm. the thing they say. Right. What should they do? You know, what I, what I like to do now is get beyond. You know, when people do that, when somebody says something that's you know, emotionally violent or a slur or something that's very aggressive, um, you know, in, in, in front of people. And often they'll kind of say, oh, I'm not politically correct. Or they'll say, oh, what's wrong? People can't handle, you know, things I just today. speak my mind, yes. Right, they just speak my mind. You know, you can't be spontaneous. You can't say what you're thinking. Bullshit. You know, this isn't about political correctness. It's not about just, uh, you know, like inhibiting what, what what's on your mind. It's about being sensitive and it's recognizing that language has power. Language has impact and people feel it. And we have to take care in how we communicate because people do feel pummeled by language and people feel isolated by language and they feel threatened by language. And language is something that is very important to wield carefully so when people use language that is violent we treat it like we would if somebody were walking around a parking lot you know hitting cars with a you know with a golf club we'd stop them and say you can't do that and when people do that with language we need to say hey that's breaking a rule it's not okay it's not effective and it just makes people feel uncomfortable and we remind them, we try to appeal to their empathy if they're capable of empathy. And we think how it would be if, you know, we might have to make it sometimes the only way to get people to feel empathy is to try to promote identification. So remind them of a time they felt bullied or someone they cared about felt bullied, you know, and we have to get really base and elementary. And sometimes that helps for people to understand why a slur is painful. What if they're the only person at the table who notices the slur? Everyone else goes, oh, just funnies. You know, then I think what you do is maybe you just call out the table in a kind of an offhanded way that will at least make an impact. Like say, oh, I guess I guess racism's on the menu tonight. Okay, well, there you go. Should have expected that. You know, and you don't say it like it's funny, but you say it like, really? You know, and you just kind of call it out. Or you say, oh, okay, is that is that what we're... You know, that's it. People want to ignore that and act like it's okay to talk that way or, you know, whatever the thing is, call out the sexism or the the bigotry or the, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I think it's important to at least acknowledge it or we all are kind of complicit. But the way we acknowledge it, we can turn the table upside down and ultimately that's probably just going to make it look like we are feeding the division, Right. So mm. it's better to try to stay calm and take higher ground a little bit, but certainly call it out with an objection. I see. So don't get directly aggressive. Say something that shows discontent without making big mm. stink. Is that right? Perhaps. 
well, we don't need to stay polite, but we certainly don't want to reduce ourselves to character attacks or, you know, hurtful language, because then we are, maybe we're not being the same as them, but we're not really going to be able to kind of, you know, hold out our approaches, more model behavior. And ultimately, that's what we want to have happen, is we want to really increase, uh, you know, the civility in the situation. And we can really only do that by holding ourselves accountable to that. Even though it might be frustrating, we might want to take a shortcut to really you know, tell somebody who they are, but honestly, it's not going to serve us or the, you know, or the collective mm. in, the long, in the long run. Yes. Um, now, if someone is going home for the holidays, mm. um, what advice do you get? And they have very, you know, antagonistic relationship. That's a big word for me. Antagonistic uh, relationship with yeah. the family. I, what? Airbnb, Airbnb, <laughs> Airbnb. So you say they go yeah. home and you tell them not to stay with the family? Yes. Well, I was, that was a joke, but no, not necessarily. Maybe, maybe yeah. sometimes, sometimes the hotel helps. Yes. But what's okay. So yes. So somebody's going home and they have an antagonistic relationship. And they have to spend mm. several days with the family. Mm. What mm. do they do? Hmm. Well, um, I guess it depends on the environment. Is this sort of in a, you know, are they in a in a city where they can kind of get lost during the day and spend some time on their own? Let's say not. They are middle of nowhere, don't really have a car. Mm, okay. I would say um, a lot of walks might be good, you know, to punctuate time spent with the family with, with time, maybe taking a call that might be good having some business calls that need to be taken that might be helpful um errands may, you might have an errand you need to run and you might be able to to get away a little bit so i think you know it's just we always want to avoid the all to nothing experiences in life right we want to sort of moderate our experiences such that we don't feel any kind of emotional whiplash um you know, so, and I think sometimes what people really hope that maybe just by the arguments that they can get the other people to change. And mm. what do you think about that? Well, you know, as I said before, sometimes people are trying to have their perspectives validated. They kind of seem like they want to hear themselves speak. And really, they're just saying, please tell me that you can hear some validity to my argument or you hear that it's well thought out or that I really deeply believe what I'm saying. And so sometimes you can just be like, yeah, okay, I really hear you. And, and that satisfies something and calms it down. Um, but generally if we want, you know, people that, you know, it's natural. We want people we've admired, people we've felt close to. We want to feel like they're like-minded and sometimes we have to, uh, really rely on very narrow narrow sections of common ground and we have to mourn um, the, the idealized version of people that would agree with us on such things. We have to give it up. We have to say, wow, this is someone I looked up to and I learned so much from, but I really cannot look to them for this. Mm. And we have to grieve that. And then by grieving that, then maybe we can appreciate other parts of this person. 
you know, if we now look, and I'm not talking about people. If people are really deeply, offensively bigoted or, or, or engaged in things that we really can't support, sometimes we estrange. We 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 don't we don't have those people in our lives, right? Sometimes we have to make those decisions, and that's self-enhancing and 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 better for for everyone. So. We also have to, we have to be honest, sometimes there are people who are so despicable that they probably don't deserve to participate in things. And we have to be honest about that to the degree that, you know, at least for now, or we have to, you know, we have to limit our, our participation with them. Mm. If people, if people are going to be hurtful, for instance, to people we care about or, or say things in front of our children or, or, or the children in our family that we think is going to be damaging to them, we're not going to subject people to that just based on conven- convention or notion of, uh, you know, gathering together, right? Mm. Yes, we have to draw the line somehow. We have to draw the line. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Dr. NYC, yeah. so if you can't expect them to change, um, what does that mean for you? You know, I think, I think, you know, with, with, with families, we, we think about the sort of, it's sort of like sitting with cultural difference where, you know, we, we, we have to anticipate that there's going to be some sort of, you know, cultural clash or some, you know, some, some, some difficulty kind of settling in when there's difference. We have to think about it. We have to grapple with it. We need to talk about it. And, and ultimately, you know, difference can be really enhancing in a system. Um, but what happens is when families get together, there's sort of these, you know, people have moved away and they've had new experiences and they live in different places. And we, we become culturally different from our families. And yet there's always this kind of expectation when we get together that, wait, why aren't we all like, you know, seeing eye to eye? Well, it's because, you know, when we saw eye to eye, it's like we were kind of buying whatever we were being sold or, you know, it was, a, it was earlier days or we were all still living in the same place, the same locale, and it was easier. And as families grow and scatter, it's people are going to see things differently and that becomes really uncomfortable to assist them. Uh, and so, you know, in part, we might want to try to bring other people along and try to understand and grow with us, hopefully, certainly accept us and accept different kinds of lifestyles and, and things. But we can't necessarily expect people to be different, you know, than, than who they are. And some people stay put and some people move on. And there's going to be a there's going to be a gulf there. Yeah. So I guess I'm taking from this, you have to know the lines. It's about the lines and the rules. You have to have the rules mm-hmm. of engagement, the rules. lines, right. expectations. Parameters, expectations. We have to w- regulate ourselves, try to listen to the other. If we attend to being a good citizen, um, you know, then at least one person in the dynamic is doing that, right? We can't. We can we we have some influence over others' behavior, but we really have most most influence over our own. But we can really, you know, we can make things more peaceful and, and in a strategic sort of way. Hmm. Great. So strategy is the mm-hmm. name of the games. Thank you so much, Dr. NYC, for being with us here today. Now, if you would like to work with Dr. NYC on your stuff with relationships um, or therapy in general, you can reach out to Reconcile the Isle and we will put you directly in touch. Yes, wonderful. Sounds great. Please be in touch. Bye. Excellent. Bye. Thank Thank you. you. How did the interview go for you, Melania? 
I almost had one moment of self-reflection, but then I looked down at my engagement ring and started counting to 1.5 million. Okay, so for the rest of us, as you're going into the holidays and spending more time with family, remember a few things. One, it's not always about the moment. It's about a larger issue. Two, if you're going to speak up about something difficult, which we should be doing, make sure that there's fair fighting going on, some sort of agreed upon rules and etiquette. And if people are not going to abide by these rules, then you shouldn't be having the conversation because at that point, no one is going to be open to new ideas anyway. Three, Know where your boundaries are and stick to them. Listen, I know it's hard. Uh, I will probably will fail at two or three of these things by the time I finish the appetizer. But it's simply something to keep in mind. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I wanted to thank everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Maddie McLennan for creating the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters of Dimly Wit Productions, who helped get this podcast started in the first place. And of course, thank you to Dr. NYC for being such a wonderful guest. You can follow the podcast on my Twitter and Instagram, at Lauren Logi, that's L-O-G-I, and do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my podcast guests. Now, this episode giveaway is a comprehensive PDF with all of the notes from this episode. It's a way for you to be able to read that over before you go into really stressful situations. Dr. NYC spent a lot of time on this, so it's really generous of her to spend all that effort and time and energy putting that together for us. But there you have it, and you can go get it for free at laurenlogie.com slash podcast. And if you want to catch one of my shows, I do stand up in character as Melania Trump, then go on over to laurenlogie.com slash shows and find out when you can catch me live. And consider joining my list while you're there. You'll get a lot of inside info and discounts, and you'll be the first to know when my satirical book about Melania Trump comes out. Listen, we have to learn how to have public discourse again. The world's on fire, and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So, Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. Impeachment. Although if I may butt in, I would actually love to get out of the White House of Garbage to get back to my rich and fulfilling life in the Trump Tower staring at the window. So I do care a smidge about this one. But the impeachment and the fighting. There are nine active wildfires in California. Facebook is about to launch a news tab that could make our echo chamber even worse. And many Kurds have been displaced and slaughtered. But I don't care. Do you?